Well, this morning we're continuing to follow the resurrection insurrection through the book of Acts, how that small group of dedicated people, followers of Jesus, spread the news about him throughout the ancient world, and how their story kind of parallels our story, our challenges to be dedicated disciples of Christ today. And last week you may remember that the Apostle Paul has made this kind of northwest loop from ancient Turkey to ancient Greece, but wherever he starts talking about Jesus, people try to kill him. Well, why? It's because the gospel of Christ, rightly presented, turns worlds upside down, not just for individuals, but for the way it challenges cultures and traditions and values and power and money. And people don't like that. So Paul is on the run. He has to beat feet out of town a couple of times with a lynch mob hot on his trail. And so he's secretly bundled off to Athens, but he just can't stay in hiding. That just wasn't in him. He's got this fire in his belly. So off he goes exploring this new city. So let me read Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers uh, began to debate with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, and they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And Paul then stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For of one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from any of us. And then he quotes from their own philosophers. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, meaning Jesus, from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered and others said, we want to hear you on this again. 
And that that Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, and a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Nabarius, and a number of others. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Amen. Well, I never thought I'd actually be in a car where the guy riding shotgun actually had a shotgun. But that's what happened back in uh, 2005 when I went with a PCNP team, Mike Shaw, Dave Bramhill, and Will Quinn and I. We went to, to northern India to visit one of our mission partners there. And we had one day to do all the touristy stuff like visit the Taj Mahal. But the rest of the trip was spent in areas of the country where tourists were warned not to go into the rural areas and small towns far from the larger cities because that's where the ministry worked with the Bangi Dalits, the lowest caste of untouchables in India. You see, in Hinduism, you're born into a caste, a, a social group, and by religious law, that caste determines your, your fate, your karma, your place in society. If you're upper caste, you're considered blessed by the gods, and of course, you get all the perks. But if you're in the lower caste, you are cursed by God for something you did in a previous life. And if you're an untouchable, a Dalit, you're considered barely human. And in fact, you deserve to suffer. And you do the worst, the foulest jobs imaginable. And for the Bangi Dalits, who are actually the lowest caste of untouchables, I mean, they are the absolute bottom rung of Hindu society. The only jobs they're allowed to do is to handle dead bodies and human waste. So the women clean latrines in the rural villages by hand, and the men haul the waste to the dump, which is usually right next to where the Dalits are forced to live. And then later, the children go back to the homes where they cleaned, and they beg for table scraps. That's how they eat. That's how they live for over a thousand years. That's what Hinduism says is right, and it's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. The caste system, it's the worst kind of exploitation and economic slavery because you're locked into your caste no matter what and violent crimes against untouchables are rarely even investigated but when untouchables turn to christ it's a whole new world being christian lifts them out of this caste system it lifts them out of that degrading poverty it gives them a new identity new job skills and an opportunity for a whole new life We toured a series of boarding schools for hundreds and hundreds of children, beautiful children, who all used to have to beg for food to feed themselves and their families. Now because of Christ, they're they're happy, they're healthy, they're going to school, and they're looking forward to a better path through life. The church there has seen well over a million Bangidalits adult baptisms in the last decade. I mean, the church is growing so fast, they don't have enough pastors to keep up for it. The people themselves are spreading the gospel from one village to the next. It's really like seeing the book of Acts come alive right before your eyes. Very exciting. And so there's also opposition. The radical Hindus don't like this resurrection insurrection. It upsets their carefully ordered world. It challenges their power, and they don't want to have to clean their own latrines. So the leaders of this ministry are often targets of violence and intimidation, and we had to be very careful about what we did and where we went. And one afternoon, we were to visit a local pastor, but our guides got word that the radical Hindus knew that we were in the area. and They had surrounded this pastor's house with a mob of over 1,500 people 
all waiting for us to arrive so that they could create some kind of an incident. They were planning a riot of some kind. And that meant we had to completely bypass this town to get to our next destination. So a two-hour bus ride turned into a 15-hour all-night ordeal where we had to zigzag our way across dirt roads across the Ganges River in the middle of the night. And finally, in the early morning, we were on the outskirts of our destination, and we got out of the bus to view the ground where our church would eventually build a woman's center that would help educate the women and give them job training and basic discipleship and literacy. And I'm so proud of what we did there. I can't tell you. The dramatic way that that lifts people, these new Christians, out of poverty. But the bus was too big to navigate the, the narrow roads through the town to get to the next Christian compound. And so we had to pile into a caravan of small Japanese SUVs, and each one had an armed bodyguard riding shotgun. Turns out there's a Hindu side of town and a Christian side of town, and we were on the wrong side of town. We had to drive right through the section of town that was controlled by the most radical Hindus in the area. And the guide said, in, our mi- in their minds, we're still untouchables, and you're American Christians who do not belong in Hindu, Hindu India. The guide said, even if we hit something or someone, we won't stop. Because if we stop, we'll be dragged from the cars by mobs and beaten to death on the side of the road. That wasn't in the brochure. So off we go in the SUVs. And when we hit that town, the streets are so narrow. I mean, it's literally like about a foot and a half on either side of the rearview mirrors of the cars. And we're going about 50 miles an hour. It's like a scene out of a bad movie. Uh, People are jumping into doorways. The horns are honking. I mean, it was such a relief to cross over into the Christian side of town and get through that gate and into the safety of that compound. They greeted us with this great celebration. They put kind of these uh, gold lays over our shoulders, and I was just ready to kiss the ground, quite frankly. The last thing I ever would have thought about doing was to go out and wander the streets of that town by myself and to talk to people about Jesus. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did in Athens. He barely made it out of life from the last two towns, and what does he decide to do in Athens? He goes sightseeing. Athens was a striking city filled with great theaters and markets and the temples of the Acropolis, crowned by the Parthenon, which is still one of the most beautiful buildings in all the world. And as he walked around the city, he saw all the gods of Athens. One ancient writer tells us that at this time there were some 30,000 gods and temples in Athens each one of them with its own figurine. And you can still find copies of many of these for sale as souvenirs if you visit Athens today. And Paul recognized that these were not just merely objects of art, but they were actually gods being worshipped by the people of Athens. And what he saw really got to him. The Greek word that's used here says it was a paroxysm, an intense storm of spirit when he saw the thousands of gods being worshipped in Athens. Folks, it's important to note that, you know, we did not invent religious diversity. It's not something that we invented. In fact, we've got nowhere near the scale of religious and ethnic diversity that the young church experienced in the ancient world. Athens was this this total melting pot. And Paul's spirit was provoked when he saw this, first because, because it broke two of God's top ten, two of his top ten commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make anything of yourself, an image in the form of anything in heaven 
or above the earth or beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's from Exodus 20. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that they broke God's commandments. It also meant that the men and women of Athens had a great hunger for God. They had a great hunger, a great capacity for God, but it was misdirected. They were sincerely seeking God, but it's sort of like seeing a family spend all their grocery money on on Twinkies and ding-dongs. You know, they had a spiritual hunger that they would never satisfy that way. And Paul said he knew what could satisfy them, the real thing, Jesus. And it broke his heart. And so into that incredibly diverse culture, he spoke boldly about the uniqueness of Jesus, crucified, risen, ascended, and coming again. He did that with the religious people in the synagogues to the common people in the marketplace, the agora of ancient Greece, and to the philosophers, the the intellectual elites who love to dissect new ideas. What an example for us in our world, our multicultural melting pot, where we do this delicate dance around the truth of Christ. You know, we need to be bolder, I think clearer about the uniqueness of Christ. He's not just one among many. With Paul, we need to proclaim he is God's one and only son. So Paul gets noticed by the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And these two philosophies are still around today, big time. The Epicureans were the hard partiers, kind of live fast and, and die young. They thought the gods were pretty useless, that everything happens by chance, that Death is the end of it all. They didn't believe in an afterlife, no heaven or no hell. This life is all there is, and it's basically a meaningless journey. So the only thing that matters is your personal pleasure. Their motto, very familiar, it's still with us today, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That came from the Epicureans. Sounds like a beer commercial. Lots of Epicureans in our world today, they just don't know how to spell the name. The Stoics were kind of the New Age gurus of their day who believed everything was God. Every rock, every flower, every butterfly. And every person had this little spark of divinity in them. It just needed to be fanned into flame and then everything would be okay. They'd be popular guests on Oprah selling books about discovering your inner consciousness. But they also taught sort of this this Zen detachment from life. Don't get emotionally involved in things. Kind of Apathy was sort of their highest virtue of life. And so their motto for life would have been, whatever, whatever, with a shrug of the shoulders. And at first the Epicureans said Paul was a babbler. The word literally is seed pecker. In other words, like one of those little birds in the marketplace going around and picking up scraps of food. That's how they looked at the Apostle Paul. When he talked about the resurrection, they just kind of dismissed him. But the Stoics were more interested And so both groups took him into the debating club meeting at the Oropagus, which means Mars Hill. That's like, you know, getting an offer to speak at Harvard or maybe to make a TED conference video. It was the place where the self-proclaimed intellectuals gathered to entertain themselves with new ideas. So how does Paul begin? Well, he just starts where they are. He does not denounce them or attack them like so many Christians might do today, unfortunately. In fact, he He pays them a compliment as far as he could. He said to them, I've noticed one thing about you. You're a very religious people. The word he used, though, literally was God-fearers. 
But the word he chose was an unusual word for God. It wasn't the common word theos that, that was normally used. He used the word damion, demon. So in a sense, he's almost subtly implying that the gods that they worshipped, they weren't the same as the great God that he knew. And so he speaks about their statue of this unknown God. 30,000 gods in Athens, and that wasn't enough. They erected an altar to this unknown God just to cover their bases, just to keep their options open in case the other 29,999 didn't work out. We want to keep our options open, have, have this one more God. I mean, it reveals kind of the emptiness of this kind of religious pluralism. If everything is true, then nothing is true. If you don't worship the true God, then there's no end to your search. You'll just keep going forever. But Paul sensed this hunger for God that they could not find among this choice of 30,000 gods. And so he says, this is the God I want to talk about. What you worship ignorantly, I've come to declare to you openly. The real deal, not something manufactured by human hands, not created out of the thin air of superstition or cultural tradition, but the God who made everything and who wants to know you and wants you to know him, who wants you to know his love and his grace, his power and his peace, I want to talk to you about that one true God. You know, we're a lot like the people of ancient Athens. We live in this ultimate choice culture. And that's really what our materialism is all about. It gives us choice after choice after choice after choice. Hundreds of choices from the food we eat to the clothes we wear, the number of channels on our TV to the latest gadgets and gizmos that we want to get. We love having all our choices, but in some ways we're paralyzed by them too. What if something better comes along? What if a, a better cell phone comes out next week with, with more gadgets and gizmos to it, a, a better deal? What if a better person comes along? If we commit too early, we might miss something. <clears throat> so our volume of choices makes it harder for us to land. It makes it harder for people to actually commit to things. And that's true when we think about who we are and how we live, too. It's not just about the clothes we wear or the colors we're going to paint the bathroom. It's also about our choices about who am I today? What person will I be? What roles will I play? What masks will I wear? What direction should I take with my life? What beliefs will I follow today? And we get paralyzed by those choices too. In the Midtown Fellowship Group that meets in Manhattan, we've been studying Tim Keller's excellent book, I'd really recommend it to you, called Counterfeit Gods. And the intro starts with this passage of Paul in Acts 17. And Keller says that the biggest battles that you and I are ever going to face have to deal with our idols, the way Jesus confronts the idols that we carry in our hearts. They might not be little figurines, but we all have this struggle with our own counterfeit gods. He writes this, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture has its, is dominated by its own set of idols, <clears throat> what is an idol? It's anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you only that 
which God can give. The Bible says that the human heart is an idol factory. Anything can be a God that rules and serves as a deity in the heart of a person or in the life of people. Perfectionism, workaholicism, chronic indecisiveness, the need to control the lives of others. All of these stem from making good things into idols that then drive us into the ground as we try to appease them. You know, there are moments every day when we must choose. When we must choose between the many idols that we have created or choose to follow the true God, our Savior Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who can set us free from the bondage of our cultural idolatry. The paralysis, the anxiety, the strain that we have in pursuing the idols that we have absorbed. It's only through Christ where we can find the clarity instead of confusion, the security instead of doubt, and the forgiveness instead of the guilt that all of these idols produce in our hearts. Choices. Moments when we must make the right choice to follow the true God instead of the counterfeit gods of our culture. Paul was exceptionally bold. There is no doubt about it. With no backup other than the spirit of Christ within him, he puts it out there. I mean, he is right there in front of people, standing alone, proclaiming Jesus Christ to people who would scoff at him and laugh at him or just maybe just be intellectually curious about it. But Paul was a lot like the missionary Jim Elliott, who was killed bringing the gospel to the jungles of Ecuador back in the 1950s. Elliot put it this way. He said this prayer. He said, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision points. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. That was what the Apostle Paul was all about in a nutshell. When people confronted him, they were confronted with a choice. What do you do with Jesus Christ? What do you do? A crisis man who confronted people who were used to keeping their options open. He confronted them with the decision to follow the one true God through Jesus Christ. So what would he say to you and to me this morning? What would he say to us in the midst of our diversity, our multiculturalism? What would he say to you this morning about how you're living and what idols you're following? He'd say it's time to make a choice. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord Jesus, I thank you for the Apostle Paul. I don't have his backbone. I don't have his boldness, Lord, but I sense that we all need a little bit more of that. In this world where we're so timid, we're so unsure of ourselves, Lord, help us to be bold for you. In this choice culture, help us to choose you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.